welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. Today we're going to be talking about the institutions that enable research on smaller fields in the humanities, and Byzantine studies is definitely one of those. Uh, we can define them as fields that a major research university can afford to not include in its repertoire if it so chooses without raising any serious alarm. And specifically, we'll be talking about the declining fortunes of these smaller fields in the humanities at public universities in the United States and the UK. I wanted a comparative discussion here, and I, I believe I found an excellent interlocutor for it. The heart of the matter is a nexus of problems that I'll just enumerate, though at heart they're all part of the same problem. These are the rising cost of tuition for attending a university, the virtual absence of good academic jobs being advertised in those smaller fields, and even just in humanities fields at large, the decline in research funding, uh, for people who do have those jobs and the prospects that their positions will not be replaced when they retire, and also the general threat to the institution of tenure as instructors are being hired who don't have the prospect of gaining tenure. And so that institution as, as a protection for academic research is sort of gradually being phased out. And all of these together constitute a significant threat to the future of humanities research as we understand it. Now, the core of what's happening can, I think, squarely be placed within the interpretive domain of what we might call neoliberal austerity. I don't believe that either of us in this discussion uses the word neoliberal or neoliberalism, but I think it's pretty crucial. Maybe we mention the word capitalism once or twice. I'm not sure, but it's certainly not central to the particular way in which we discuss these institutions uh, in this episode. But nevertheless, they provide the context for everything that's happening. In a nutshell, neoliberal ideology privileges uh, private economic transactions for profit that, that is setting up markets where for-profit exchanges take place over the public pooling of resources to promote projects that are in the public good. So anytime that you can replace uh, a public good with a series of self-interested transactional encounters from which both sides, in theory, profit, uh, the, our dominant institutions right now <laughs> across the planet tend to favor those uh, over the collective promotion of public goods. Public goods such as, you know, health, education, and so forth. If you're wondering why college costs more for you now, the answer is very, very simple. It's because the state, and in the United States, the individual states, have simply dramatically cut back on the amount of funding that they provide to universities which in turn have had to raise that revenue from their, quote, customers who are students. And so tuition goes up. It's not as if the absolute cost of education has gone up. I mean, it has for reasons that pertain to the rest of the economy as well. It's that the cost is being shifted onto individuals and their families, students, rather than being shared collectively by the society, which pools its resources you know, via taxation in the state. So your higher tuition costs are basically your tax cuts at work. It is, of course, a highly inefficient system. It's much better to pool resources for all kinds of reasons, but then you wouldn't be able to leave tax havens of vast sums untouched by the state. Another result is that Things such as education and humanities research, which produces a, a, a product, let's say, knowledge and understanding of certain human phenomena that were understood to be of general societal interests and benefit, that those kinds of things are subject to market discipline and become, again, transactional in the sense that universities now have to start treating their, quote, product not as a public good that they're disseminating. I mean, they do, but not only as that, also as a product that they need to sell. And so the, there's a shift toward 
um, metrics that privilege um, income, uh, revenue. With, within the university system, we, we try to dance around the implications of this and pretend that we're not actually drifting into that kind of logic, but we totally are. Fundamental decisions about programs and both research and teaching are governed by pretty inflexible you know, fiscal and market metrics rather than what we all understand to be the mission of the university often stated in a document called the mission of the university. A knock-on effect of this is the gradual extinction of small fields. That is, if we continue down this path, that's where we're going to end up. So all of the new research that you, certainly, who are listening to this podcast, um, love to hear about and you're fascinated by, uh, that is becoming harder and harder under these conditions of neoliberal austerity and market discipline. I'm joined in this discussion by Tamar Hodos, who is a professor at the University of Bristol in the UK. She is an expert in Iron Age Mediterranean archaeology. In fact, she is probably the uh, biggest name in that field, and she just published a book, I think, with that exact title. Um, and she... She's a wonderful person to have this conversation with. I, I, I thought of her immediately when the constellation of different issues um, in my mind came together. Uh, she was actually the last person whom we had as a guest in our house before COVID. Um, and we had had discussions along these lines. Um, and so I instantly thought of her when I thought, well, I'd like our audience to get a sense of what these issues look like from inside the university, from people who are both very active in research, but have also had enough experience of administration in both countries to see, even if from afar, how these dynamics are playing out. So we're both kind of situated in that middle zone, maybe a Goldilocks zone, where we can see on the one hand down to the more sort of granular levels of teaching and research, and on the other hand, to the more, you know, stratospheric level where, um, you know, macro decisions about funding are made at the upper echelons of, you know, University Central Command. And, and so we can, we can kind of, we're situated kind of in the middle between those two. There is some institutional wonky talk going on between us sometimes, uh, but I, I hope that you will find the discussion illuminating um, as to the the innards of the academic machine and, and, and how it works and, and the challenges that our fields are facing. So a uh, great thank you to Tamar for agreeing to do this. Thanks also to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Uh, just a brief note on the chronology. We recorded this back in the fall. I don't remember when, but there was a spike in COVID cases back then. And that's what we're referring to. Otherwise, the conversation is as relevant now as it was then. So here's my conversation with Tamar Hodos. Hello, Tamar. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So a month ago or so, I was reading in the Chronicle of Higher Education about how various humanities fields are now facing an extinction level event. That's what it was called, in part because of COVID. But this is also a culmination of longstanding trends and my field, Byzantine studies, and your field, which is Iron Age Mediterranean archaeology. Mediterranean archaeology. Right. And ostrich eggs. And ostrich eggs, right. <laughs> so we're both endangered species. Right. <laughs> right? As professors in the, the ostriches have more of a chance. <laughs> Yeah, except the species that I study are already extinct. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. All right, take that back. I thought I wanted to have a conversation about this because it's very important for the disciplines that produce the knowledge that we disseminate. Well, I wanted someone who had experience of both American uh, systems of higher education and something European, and you're in Bristol in the UK. And who had also, in addition to doing original research, had gone close enough to the abyss of administration to stare into it with horror and, <laughs> and despair. 
and, <laughs> and someone good to rant with. And I immediately thought of you. Oh, how kind. <laughs> what we're going to talk about today is a tangle of financial, managerial, administrative, and ideological issues that are slowly driving the world of academic research in the humanities generally and in small fields in particular toward extinction. Yeah. I agree. You, you know, actually, I was thinking about this uh, just yesterday. I, I was running, I was thinking about our discussion, and I thought, you know, the at least the American research university as we know it, and, and probably also the European version as well, which it, it's really a creation after the war. Like it, it was really built up in this way that we know it in the 50s and 60s. It's not that old. Like there are people who are older than the American research university. I would say that in Britain, it's actually even younger than that. It's, it's more recent, the push to increase the percentage of population that has a higher education degree. That's been since I've been here. I've been resident in the UK since 1990. And in the 90s, there was a massive push to expand access to higher education so that a greater percentage of the population would get university degrees. Right, right. So it got like a, like a delayed GI bill or something. I, I think the British government at the time looked at the United States and saw what percentage of the population had university degrees and decided and compared and contrasted with Britain and decided that it needed to move from this very elite number of I can't remember the statistic, but maybe like 20, 25, 30% to try to get it to be more than half the population. Right, right. Yeah, and that requires expanding the universities and the faculty and libraries and so forth. That's right, but one of the differences in the UK is that higher education has been completely, at that time was completely government funded. So the expansion of students meant that the government had to put more money into paying uh, compensating universities for the tuition, but also paying living expenses to the students. So a government grant would not only cover your tuition fees, which the students never saw, but you would have a maintenance grant so that you could live for the three years that you did your degree. University degrees here tend to be three years long. Sure. Yeah. And what I'm seeing now is that in both countries, there's a push to reduce the financial commitment and the faculty and so forth while keeping the number of students at the same or growing it even. So I, I think we're seeing that, that dynamic. So what we've had in the UK since um, 1998, the government started to introduce tuition fees. And at first it was just a thousand pounds a year. And I, I found myself wishing that my American undergraduate degree tuition had only been the equivalent of a thousand pounds a year. Uh, so they started with a thousand pounds a year and then very quickly they moved it to about three thousand pounds a year and for a number of years now it's been capped at about nine thousand pounds per year and the government introduced various loan schemes for students their families to take out loans to pay for that but the idea of taking on debt for higher education is still extremely uncomfortable for a lot of people here. And this generation, if you think since 1998, it's been you know only in the last 20 years, generous 20 years, um, it's, a, it's a new generation that is taking this on. So it's, it's a big culture shift for Britain. That's already happened here. We're, we're seeing that in our rear view mirror. Um, so what I wanted to talk about is this cluster of developments. They're all tied together and they're not intuitive to people outside of the administration of higher education. So, so they might be seeing these things um, as separate developments or not seeing how they're linked, uh, but they, they all are linked. And I'm referring specifically to how college is getting more expensive for undergraduate students, why there are so few academic jobs for those who graduate uh, with a PhD, um, what kinds of structural changes are occurring within academic fields because of these constraints? Um, also now graduate study is probably going to get a lot more restrictive. 
um, possibly more expensive uh, anywhere you, you, you pay for it. So I just wanted to outline how all of these things are linked and why they're happening and start with why college has gotten so expensive. Um, you hinted at the sort of incremental growth um, of tuition in, in the UK. In the US, this has been stratospheric, right? The growth of tuition in, yeah. um, for, for colleges. And it's, it's just gone up and up and up during the past generation to the point where you're now just basically, in, in many universities, you're basically like buying a new Mercedes every year. For tuition. I'm nodding my head, but your, your listeners can't see that. I'm nodding my head enthusiastically. Uh, my son is 16. And in the British system, he's about to, he's sitting GCSEs, which are national exams. And then he'll do a two-year A-level program. And then he'll be going off to university. So we are beginning to have those discussions now about what A-levels he'll take and what he might want to do at university. Because in Britain, when you apply to university, you're actually applying directly to the major. It's not just that you're applying right. to the university and you'll have a chance to take a lot of things and then you settle on your major like in the States. You're applying directly to the degree program you want to do. So they really force you to start to narrow down at the age of 16. But because I'm American, my undergraduate degree is from the States, I'm not unfamiliar with the US system. I'm not adverse to him coming back to the States for university, but I will admit that the tuition fees scares me. I don't know how we're supposed to finance that on a UK salary where generally our salaries are lower and our taxes are higher. We have more state benefits. We love our national health service, et cetera, et cetera, but we pay for that through higher taxes. So our take-home pay compared to the states is a lot less. So I don't know how we would finance that. Plus buying the Mercedes every year. Mm. <laughs> of course. Yes. So um, in the US, everybody is familiar with how expensive college has gotten. And every once in a while, you'll come across an article online trying to explain why this is the case. And so they, in my experience, they almost never highlight the main cause of this, and they're, they're always looking at secondary and tertiary causes. Uh, those include administrative bloat, so just the growth of administrative offices, the people who don't do research and don't teach, but are just managing the university's things. Um, also, uh, luxury amenities for students. Uh, you've all heard of the rock climbing walls and dorms. Those are real. So, Not over here. No, <laughs> you just have them climb a wall outside. Right? Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's real because there is competition and colleges and universities are competing with each other, attracting students. And so that has led to a kind of arms race in offering the more, you know, the, the jacuzzi and the dorms and these, these kinds of things. We, we've actually, we have had our own version of that arms race, but that's been in new buildings, not so much the perks for students in terms of their accommodation and kind of lives, I, social lives. I don't mean that in the going out and partying sense, but yeah. you know, there, there are social lives outside of the classroom. What universities in this country have been investing in are snazzy new teaching spaces and laboratory facilities and libraries with designer architects and state-of-the-art architecture, beautiful new campuses, that, that's where we've been investing the money. Sure, sure. However, in the yep. US, the main driver of tuition inflation is the decline in state support for higher education. That means less money from the federal government and less money from the individual states. This has is been- that the same for privately funded institutions, though? I mean, I get that for state universities, but what about the private colleges and universities? In part, there are ways by which they do get uh, money through, especially grants. Uh, so students can apply for grants and loans and things like that. Yeah. But there are other ways, especially research grants and, and so forth. Uh, so that is definitely part of the budget uh, for private colleges, but it affects public universities much, much more. And as the state support has gone down, the universities have been forced to make up the shortfall primarily through raising tuition. That's like a direct link. That's how it works. That's why it's happened. 
And the, de the decline in state support is done so as to lower taxes primarily on wealthier taxpayers. Like that's the ideological drive. And yeah, and it's a very, very simple correlation. So but it, it has the following. So the following transformation has occurred. And I think I, I explain this to my students because they have no idea that this has even happened. Uh, but and, and I think that also our audience might not, or they may be caught, you know, uh, shadows of this development. But here's roughly what's happened. Instead of taxing the money where it is, the state, and then giving it to universities and students in order to support higher education as a public good, the state has stepped back. It said, I'm not taxing that capital. That capital then gets parked in banks. And then it's telling students, now you go borrow the money from banks in order to pay for your education, which I'm going to treat as a private investment on your part because it, the degree will lead to higher career earnings. And so I'm just going to step back and let you sort it out for, on the private money market, borrow the money. Uh, meanwhile, the university has increased its tuition because it, it has to. It's not, right? It, it's, it's, it has to make up that revenue shortfall. And in fact, the state isn't entirely stepping back because its role... <laughs> is to enforce loan contracts, right? So in other words, it's just basically the cop on the beat on behalf of the banks and has actually gotten into the business. The federal government in the US is in business with some very predatory college loan organizations. Oh, but that's always been the case. It, yeah, but I mean, they've just gotten much, much worse now um, in all kinds of ways. So the idea, so Americans have by now internalized the idea that college is a private personal investment that you go deeply into debt for in order to hopefully pay it back once your degree has um, assured you uh, a lucrative career. And so that's the dynamic. That's what's happened. And I'll just say one more thing, yeah. which is that it tends to, it's created a massive shift in seeing, first of all, in seeing higher education as a public good to being a private personal investment, but also in seeing it as a, a monetary investment rather than an education. And so increasingly more and more parts of the college experience are being assessed and evaluated in terms of future career performance like directly rather than what this does for you intellectually, morally as a citizen and so forth, right? So that's the overall structure of the development in order to reduce taxes on, on where the money is today in America. And we know where the money is today in order to reduce taxes on that, everybody has to go into debt to get an education. Like that's, that's the dynamic. So what's driving it in Britain? So it's, a lot of the phrases that you've said are very familiar to me in the discussion that's happened here about the introduction of tuition fees, increasing tuition fees, uh, student loans, and when someone will start to pay back those student loans. So uh, much of what you've said is, is really familiar. At the same time, it's a little bit different. Um, so it's university education it, in this country is by and large, completely subsidized and run by the government. So the government controls our tuition fees. It controls uh, this, the number of students that we take in. And so everything is very regulated. When the government wanted to expand the number of students in higher education, but couldn't match it price for price per student, that's when tuition fees were introduced so that students could begin to absorb some of that cost. But we are still subsidized by the government. So one of the issues we have right now with, with COVID-19, for instance, uh, we are doing blended learning and yet cases of COVID are skyrocketing in all the university campuses and university towns, but the government is very reluctant to give universities the authorization to go completely online 
because students may then ask for part of their tuition back since the facilities aren't being used entirely. And so the university would be saving money. But because the tuition fees are top up income for universities, the universities won't give back that tuition fee. They will then turn around and ask the government to pay that reimbursement. And the government doesn't know where that money will come from. And this is why we're at this impasse right now where we're continuing to deliver a certain amount of face-to-face -face teaching every day, every week, and yet cases are continuing to rise and no one is calling the brakes on that. And I will say staff are very anxious. Uh, I think a lot of students are very anxious as well, but also very confused as to why, why things, this is a juggernaut that nobody seems to know where it's, it's going. But that's a little bit of a, a diversion. Uh, so when the government wanted to increase tuition fee or increase students, they expanded, uh, expanded student numbers, they increased tuition fees. And part of the argument for that was a demonstration of people with college degrees, university degrees, have higher earning potential than those who don't. So that was the argument. It's worth taking on the debt because when you get into one of these high paying jobs after graduation, because you have a university degree that you won't really be able to get so easily if you don't have a degree, then you'll be able to pay the debt back. But there is also a threshold at which you do pay those loans back because they're government loans. These aren't private banks. This is government student loans. And if you don't earn above that threshold after an extended period of time, I think it might be 20 years or 25 years, the government waives the loans altogether. So you never pay them back. So for people who go into, um, say, the teaching profession and perhaps don't progress to becoming a, a head of school or you know, move, up, move up the hierarchy, but where they're earning that threshold, they may end up never paying back those student loans. So the government ultimately may lose out. And because this is such a new scheme for us, it's only been, I mean, I know I said that um, government funded higher education until 1998, but then they started with a thousand pounds tuition fee. That's fairly easy to pay back. But ever since it's been 9,000 pounds, which has been in the last, I think about eight years, might slightly longer, um, we don't know the long-term employability prospects, earning potential to see how many of those loans will be paid back. And of course, nobody could anticipate 2008. Yeah, that, that, the 9,000 pounds fee has to be a lot longer than that. It must be more than, it might be 15 years now. Um, and so we just don't know how many of those loans will, will be written off? And that will have economic consequences because of the income that the government would have been expecting from the, the payment of those loans. I think it's important to add here that for all that that might count as a monetary loss, a direct loss in government revenue from the return of those loans, nevertheless, the government has already invested in creating an educated workforce that is, which then contributes to economic growth and productivity. In other words, it's not a loss for the government to invest, right, in educating its citizens so that they have complex jobs. I, I, I'd like to think that, that, I'd like to agree with you on that. One of the differences that we have here, one of the issues we have is that there are more students who want to do humanities subjects which are cheaper to teach, as opposed to the STEM subjects, which require expensive laboratory equipment, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So uh, it costs more to teach a science student, a STEM subject student, than an arts and humanities student. And so there are also caps on STEM subjects because they're expensive, but the government has ring-fenced funding to try to recruit students to STEM subjects because we do have a dearth of STEM educated pupils and going, I mean, we're short on engineers, we're short on STEM subject based profession. And that's because of the cost. Well, it's not the cost because remember the tuition is capped at 9,000 pounds. So the government is making up that difference. It has to do with interest actually from mm. students coming through at the age of 16, deciding I'm right. going to, 
I'm going to narrow down and take these science courses. I'm going to do a STEM subject at university. Right. There so, is okay. This is yeah. this is a huge difference. And yeah. and I, I can say that I benefited immensely from the American system because I was a physicist. <laughs> That's what I came to study. And I went into I went into college as a chemist. Wow, but there you go. Yeah. I thought which, I was gonna major in chemistry when I started which you my still use. You still which I do still use, but but yes, not well, I yeah, I do use it, but I actually, I ended up in classics and classical studies was my undergraduate degree in the end. Yeah, yeah. I, I switched during the course of a year. You could trace it in my courses from, from physics to philosophy to history. And anyway, yeah. Um, next topic, which related, why are there so few good academic jobs? Um, shall we start with you? Why don't you tell us about the UK? Sure. Well, yeah. I, I can answer that because again, we are... Controlled, controlled by the government. I mean, it sounds very, very draconian, but actually higher education is very much controlled by the government, how much a university might expand because any expansion in student numbers means that the government has to put more money into that, that aspect that they are already paying for that the students then top up with the loans. So there is kind of a cap on student numbers anyway. Um, we are very conscious of staff student ratios. And of course, when you expand an institution, you need to, it's not just a question of having more students, you need to have more teaching space, you need to have more office space, you need to have more laboratory space, you need more study space, which requires infrastructure. So it's expensive to expand because you have to expand the physical footprint of your institution as well as the staffing. So I think there are few permanent jobs because it's not growing at that kind of exponential rate. We're expanding student numbers, but we're not expanding the number of staff in the same proportion. I thought that even in the UK, when faculty re from, retire from good positions, that they're not always replaced. So what happens is that no, they're, they're not always replaced. And if, if a full professor retires, they may be replaced by a lecturer. Every university has a slightly different model. I can only speak about mine, where if somebody does leave, for whatever reason they retire, they get a job somewhere else. In my institution, you don't automatically get that post replaced. The department has to put forward a business case to justify the replacement. And it's not about intellectual justification. We need to have this area covered to provide this well-rounded base in, in this discipline. No, it's a business case. How will this post bring in income? So how do you make a business case for uh, the professor classics? We have to demonstrate that filling this post will bring in undergrad, additional undergraduate students because we can create a new undergraduate degree or we'll be able to expand our master's degree offering. So we'll have more students come in to do a master's program. That's, that's the only way, because at least in, in the humanities. In the UK as a rule, master's degrees are paid for by the students who- Definitely, absolutely. So in fact, even, um, well, I say definitely, in the sciences, it's, it's more common to have funding for master's programs. But in the arts, there's extremely little funding for MA programs, but our MA programs are taught one-year degrees by and large. I mean, some universities have slightly different right, right. variations on this, but by and large, a British master's program is a one-year taught program. And then you go into a PhD, which is pure research, but it's only three years long. You have four years to finish it, get it submitted within your fourth year. But by and large, the, the British, I guess, postgraduate program, you do a master's degree for one year and then three years of your PhD in which you're paying tuition fees. And then you might have a writing up fee in the fourth year. So that whole process is much quicker compared to the American market, but there's actually substantially less funding. As a university, we don't have our, that much private money to give to students to fund their PhDs. We are, we, almost all of us, are part of national scheme of, for the humanities, the Arts and Humanities Research Council provides funding for PhD studentships that pays the cost of tuition and living expenses. 
and they're divided into clusters of consortia that, so universities group together and agree that they will co-supervise topics and the Arts and Humanities Research Council gives each consortia a certain number of studentships. It's a competition to get those studentships. Right. And then the consortium itself divvies that up between all the arts and humanities subjects that one could possibly do. And so my university is in league with several others and we have 30 funded studentships to give away each year across all the arts and humanities through eight universities. Wow, that's not a lot. No, it's not. The structure, it sounds like a medieval Japanese feudal structure. <laughs> I mean, I think part of the idea behind it is that the best and the brightest get the funding. Sure, we yes. do have a number of students who do PhDs who are self-funded and that, that happens as well. And of course, then the flip side, and this is where part of the, the question is, you know, wh why are there so few academic jobs? There are, we produce too many PhD students for the number of academic jobs that there are, just like in the States. And I think there is a perception for students coming into the PhD program. They, they go into, into a PhD because they want the academic life or they think they want the academic life before they're faced with the brutal reality of actually how challenging and isolating doing research actually is and how unrewarding it can be along the way. You know, it's, I love what I do. I know you love what you do, but there are times when really it can be slightly soul destroying before we get to the end of that project and it all comes together and the article is published or the book is published or you know you've really made a difference. There's a lot of doubt and questions along the way. Um, and so students, yeah, they're, they, get, they think they want an academic job. Some of them decide through the PhD, oh, I don't know if I really do. Or, and then we have to try to help them be employable yeah, in other, you know, outside of academia. Yeah. Um, so in the US, of course, the higher education system is not centralized. And we, we don't have anything like that structure of a ministry deciding who, how many places there are and who gets into where and so on. Each college and university makes its own decisions uh, about this, which tends to produce a certain sort of homogeneity in, in, in the practices, but nevertheless, they are autonomous units and often in competition with each other. Mm. Um, and what's uh, it's sort of interesting that in, in, in American graduate programs, generally they are funded by the institution. So like at Ohio State, we don't take graduate students we can't fund. Whereas at Bristol, we do. I mean, we take yeah. students that, that get the AHRC funding, but we will also take students who are self-funded. Yes, but interestingly enough, we're both overproducing uh, PhDs that is incommensurate with the job market, the academic job market at the end of that process. It's the same thing here. Yeah. Um, now, as I said, there aren't enough academic jobs for all the PhD students we graduate, but Moreover, there aren't as many academic jobs as there were the previous year. <laughs> like the number of faculty is declining in absolute numbers, right? And they're being, if they're being replaced, they're being replaced by what we, in the US we call adjuncts or lecturers. And, and we call I, them temporary teaching staff, part-time hourly paid or someone's on a, on a casual contract, casualization. Temporary yeah. contract. Basically, it's Uber for universities. Yeah. That, that, no, that's exactly what it is. Highly flexible, easily fired, modular employment uh, where, yeah, you can be hired for very little to do this little bit and then you're fired. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible work conditions. Now, you make more money than as a graduate student. <laughs> I mean, we, we give a stipend to our graduate students. It's enough for them to live on, get through graduate school without debt. That's very important. They have enough debt from their undergraduate, right? Um, and so if you're, if you're 26, 27, you make it through a graduate degree without debt, presumably you're doing something you love, and then you graduate and you're hired as a lecturer and you're teaching three or four courses a semester, 
for a little bit more money than you were making as a graduate student. It's a step up, it's okay for a couple of years, right? But if it goes on and on and like that's all you're finding and you're having to move from city to city or cobble together enough courses from this university and that university in order to make a living and you're just not finding a tenure track position, which is the experience of most PhDs by this point, it is just exploitative and demoralizing. Um, and by this point in the US, I'm seeing data that instruction in American universities by adjuncts has reached 60, 70% level. Wow. Right. Yeah. And why is this happening? Well, so the same reasons that are driving tuition up. In other words, as revenue from the state, as support from the state declines and expenses go up, because expenses go up in the natural course of things, the budgets are getting squeezed and those who make decisions about money make them based on what's gonna bring them more money. Like that's, right. that's the thinking. And they tend to think, and I'm not sure they're right about this, but they tend to think that humanities is not one of those things. Um, and so professorships are not replaced. And if the teaching capacity is replaced, it's replaced with lecturers. It's not dissimilar here in, in some regards as well. So I had a colleague who left in February. Um, she hasn't been replaced because we would have to put in a, a business case, but we still have huge numbers of students. So we've had to hire in somebody temporary to help us keep our staff student ratio overall within the department. And, and so that's this, this whole business case model creates this casual gig economy yep. where you get somebody economy. coming in to cover for the year while the department gets its paperwork in order and gets it approved by the various hierarchies of senior management within the institution before we can then advertise for the job. And part of the problem with that, of course, is it's a great opportunity for you as a recent newly minted PhD to get some really valuable teaching experience, show you're a team player, show you're adaptable, spread your wings and all of that. Right. But when it comes to the job, it's all about research. And in this country, it's all about your publications, your research outputs, your grant capture. And so great that you can teach all these things and that you have been teaching all these things. But if you're not still publishing articles in major peer reviews and getting that monograph out, you could be working year after year in these arguably crappy jobs, not having the time to do the research because you're a teaching fellow. So you're given more teaching than the permanent members of staff just at a time when actually you need the time and headspace to develop your research profile to show that you are a researcher and can hack it as a permanent academic. Mm -hmm. This has also given rise to the industry of postdocs which has increased dramatically in the arts and humanities. When I finished my PhD in a previous millennium, <laughs> the, way, the way you you got your academic permanent job was through these temporary teaching contracts. You go from contract to contract, eventually a teaching job would a, a permanent post would come up. And because you, you know, you showed you you had you had research, but really you could teach all these things, then you were hired. And then the young member of staff had all the teaching piled onto you so that the more senior members of staff could do less teaching and focus on their research. That shifted probably over the last 10 to 15 years. And what I see now is that there's this industry of postdocs where somebody finishes and then they, they'll get a, a postdoc position for a year and they'll bounce to another one. And then maybe they'll have something at a university that'll be a postdoc that they'll do some teaching and they'll bounce from position to position to position like that getting the publications out, waiting for that permanent job to come up. And it's, it's extended that kind of waiting to get on with your life yeah, considerably. Yeah. And considering that the US market, or you know, it takes a lot longer to do the master's degree and PhD, even if you go straight through from age 21, you graduate from college and you go straight into a master's PhD program, you're in your late 20s if you're lucky, when you get that PhD, and then you move from postdoc to postdoc to postdoc, you could be in your mid thirties. 
before you finally get a, a tenure track job. And then you have to do all the things that are necessary to get tenure. And for women, especially right. where we have a biological clock ticking, it is detrimental to setting, settling down, putting down roots and having a healthy work-life balance that you as an individual might like to have. The number of academic women that I know who have gone through IVF or adoption because they waited too long oh, wow. to start having children because they felt I need to get the academic post. I need to get my tenure. I need to, you know, this is, this is not a way to have a healthy work-life balance. No, but it increases managerial flexibility. I mean, that's the, <laughs> no, no, that's how it's, that's, that's how it goes. And, but the impact particularly is on women. Oh and, yeah. yeah. It, it, but it's designed, you know, to give institutions the maximum amount of power in controlling their workforce without regard for how it impacts, you know, their lives and, right. and, and so forth. And, and this also has consequences for the, the quality of instruction. And now I'm not, I'm not knocking lecturers or postdoc at all. They're the young and brightest people in the field, but the structural dynamic when you're replacing faculty with adjuncts is that you shift from smaller courses taught by senior faculty who retire to large lecture courses taught by adjuncts to increase enrollments. And it's different in this country. Oh yeah, we how, don't how, we how, don't how, have that dichotomy. So we have in my department a couple of temporary staff members uh, who are actually as fully integrated. They teach. We, we all teach large mandatory units. We all teach our own special subjects. So in terms of that kind of balance of running mandatory units, but also having a, a special subject, it's very equitable in that way. Ah. Uh. See, there are controls that prevent me. So I'm the chair of classics right here. And, but there, there are uh, higher level managerial controls that prevent me from doing that in the sense that I used to have much more faculty, like 16, and yeah. now I'm down to 12. And faculty, you can assign to smaller courses without needing to justify it because they're, you know, they're soon to be specialists teaching in their whatever. But when I ask the dean to <clears throat> hire a lecturer, especially now under COVID, it's all like, okay, how many students? And right. we'll start approving from the larger courses. The larger you can make them, the better. And uh, okay, so the difference for us is that our, we're looking at student numbers in terms of those who are registered on the degree program. So it's, it's easier for us to manage because we know right, right from freshman year that we are going to have 75 students doing single honors anthropology, for instance. And we're going to have 35 students doing archaeology and anthropology as a joint degree. So we know our student numbers per yeah. those courses, what's a mandatory unit and what's an optional unit within the major. We know those numbers right from the beginning of a student's freshman year. I see. Yeah, because you you cubbyhole students by their majors and, and right. So, that's right. right. You apply but, directly right, to right. the major. Because see, we don't do that. We're we're constantly being told go get as many engineering students as you can and pack them into your courses. And so, and we do, we do, we have a huge mythology course, you know, and I think the second, that's the largest course in the university, I believe. So we, we don't even have that flexibility here because when you, we're modular in name, but not in practice. We have three tiers that a student needs to move through over three years. So it's not like moving through 100 level, 200 level, 300 level over four years, where if you've got a clash in the in the timetable, then you'll just do it the following year because you'll follow your prerequisites and it will all work out by your senior year. You'll have taken the mandatory units and yeah, the optional yeah. units just in a different order from your mate, perhaps. Here, it's three tiers in three years. So actually there's often very little flexibility and students don't have much chance to take a class outside of their major area or they might only get to do one. So we don't necessarily, I mean, a bit of money follows the student in that, yes, if we have an open unit like that, that's open to anybody in the university, then it brings money into the school. So kind of a level above the department 
And then we might get some support in terms of markings that we can pay PhD students to help us mark if we've got you know, 135 students registered on uh, human sexuality and anthropology, for instance, uh, which has interest to a lot of people, but that would mean an awful lot of essays for one lecturer to mark, mm -hmm. then we do get relief to help with, with the marking, even if it's the permanent member of staff who's doing the delivery. Yeah, yeah. Let's not get into how you actually grade papers in the UK because yeah, it's, no, 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 that's a whole it's other... an immensely depressing topic. And I, don't want, I just don't want to hear it. Yeah, we can talk about that in another podcast. So the impact of all of this on academic fields, like higher level research. So every year I'm contacted by very many students who want to apply to a graduate program in Byzantine studies from around the world. Um, this year in particular, uh, it's about one or two a week. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I talked to them on Skype or Zoom, you know, just explain how, how things work and what's the state of the field. Uh, you know, when you have an economic downturn, you know, people normally start thinking about grad school as a way to tide them through the, yeah. We're seeing that here as well. Yeah, yeah. And what I'm finding, because I do this every year, is that there are fewer and fewer programs that I can recommend to them in, in North America to go to. And a bit depending on what subfield they're interested in. But this year, I found that I was like thinking, oh, no, that person retired. No, no, that's not. And colleagues are sometimes like they retire and they're not replaced um, or their departments can't take graduate students because the funding isn't there or the fact my colleagues decide that it's not moral to take more graduate students given the non-existent job market. And so they just stop taking students and it's fewer and fewer people. And I'm seeing this as a, this is field extinction in a, in a slow, it's a slow, well, I don't know how slow moving it is, but unless something changes in the fundamentals, we're just gonna end up where we were, you know, back in the 1930s or something where there are a few Ivy League places that have your, you know, exotic specialist in uh, Iron Age ostrich eggs and <laughs> Byzantine studies or whatever. Mm. And the, the rest of the country is just doing bread and butter things. Uh, anyway, that's the trend that I'm seeing in the US. Or here, you've got universities that close entire departments down. Oh, like that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oriental and African Studies has just disbanded their Middle East department altogether. We're losing language experts, modern languages, ancient languages, uh, multicultural studies, and I mean, it, it wasn't a big department, SOAS isn't a big university, but it's really drastic to make a decision to close down an entire department. They will teach out the programs that they have students registered on now, and that's it. And we've lost knowledge, we've lost expertise, and we are unlikely ever to be able to replace that because also then we're not training the next generation in those obscure dead languages. Yeah, you sent me the link um, to the article about Assyriology. And, uh -huh. you know, that's a specialty that doesn't really exist in many places. Uh, and, and it loses one or two positions. That's a good percentage of its worldwide presence. Uh, so I'm apprehensive about what this is all going to do. And at some point, the both society and the market are going to catch on that this is happening. And if a PhD is not a relatively, I don't know if relatively safe is even the word, but if it doesn't even remotely provide assurances of a middle-class life and employment afterwards, there's no rational sense in, in going through it. And, and if fewer people, and we haven't gotten to that point, like I, as I said, more people are applying to PhD programs now in an economic downturn, but I don't think they understand just how bad it is on the other end. Once that knowledge gets out, I'm assuming that fewer people are going to choose to go into these uh, research fields. And then I'm wondering where all the adjuncts are going to come from. Yes. And I also view it as a actually quite a tragic loss for society at large. If you think back to the Victorian era of social enlightenment, where people would go to learned societies for these lectures to hear about the latest discoveries here and there. 
It was, there was a social vibrancy to discovering things for the sake of discovering them. And that's something that we're losing now by this narrowing down and the marketization of higher education that it must lead to employability. My students are regularly asked, what are you going to do with a degree in archeology? span Or what are you going to do with a degree in anthropology? I'm in a department of archeology span and anthropology. And my immediate response to that is, if you do a degree in classics, can you only be a classicist? Which in this country is funny because the civil service is populated with classicists. Or if you do, do a degree in English, can you only be English? Why is it that a degree in archeology span or anthropology means that that's all you can go into? You can do anything with any subject. It's about that holistic knowledge and experience that you're gaining from higher education. Do a subject that interests you and make the most of that and all the opportunities that that institution gives you. And then you'll be able to move into em employment that you enjoy, that's fulfilling and hopefully will also be financially rewarding. But it's, it shouldn't be just about the money. We should be able to enjoy what we do. Britain and Bristol particularly is known for its creative arts sector. And, you know, the creative arts lives from humanities knowledge. And so if we're not encouraging people into the humanities by not scaring them because of employability, then it's going to affect those other creative sectors and industries that make our life rich to live and enjoy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact, the idea that humanities degrees um, lead to um, unemployment is, is false. Um, there's yep. like all the data points to the exact opposite direction. Um, this is something that I put some effort into researching a few years ago. I, I don't want to get into, I mean, this is, a, this is another topic of what you can do with a humanities degree in, in, in this economy. Uh, but uh, a few years ago, the Wall Street Journal radical publication, <laughs> it put out a, a lot of data. They did some real research about employability by degree. And they had like earnings at the five-year post-graduation, 10-year and career, lifelong career earnings. And uh, just take an example, uh, history. And we're talking about majors, not graduate work here, but- Right, right. I'm talking people. about undergraduate majors as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, history wasn't that far behind engineering in lifelong earnings. Uh, Interesting, in because the statistics that you see here, humanities subjects are substantially lower than STEM subjects in terms of earning potential. Oh, huh. well, we put this data up on the on our department website. We had this big banner, why major in classics? Um, and it, along with other arguments, such as that it's the, one of the greatest preparations for law school. Uh, especially if you study yeah. an ancient language, not because law uses a lot of Latin, which it does, yeah. but because to learn an ancient language, you have to do, be able to do at least two things well, which is to memorize a lot of useless information and pay attention to detail in reading, yep. which is what lawyers are supposed to do. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and law schools know this. They know hey, if you can learn ancient Greek, you can, you can pass the bar exam like this. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Yeah, let's not get into that. That's a whole other debate. I wanted to come back to how this is affecting academic fields because you know this is a podcast about Byzantine studies. And so one other institution that's being eroded in all of this is tenure. And it's not, so you, tenure is a particular US institution. I know that there's some kind of equivalence in the UK. You can tell us about that in a moment, but in the US it's being eroded not so much by um, changing the rules about it. There was an attempt to do this in, in Wisconsin um, by the governor and so, but that's, those are rather marginal um, efforts. It's being eroded simply because you're not hiring faculty, but only lecturers. You're just simply, you're, you're eliminating tenure by simply not hiring people who have it or who have a prospect for getting it. Okay. it right, you're just kind of phasing it out through attrition. Yeah. And the reason I bring up tenure is, beca is because most people don't understand exactly what it's for and what it does. And I think that popular perceptions, which are always driven by you know, kind of populist narratives and you know, this sort of thing, 
uh, is that it's just a cozy perks that those intellectuals have. And, you know, it's like, and I don't know, they picture us sitting in- Even though it's a phenomenally brutal process. It's, <laughs> it, it's pretty rough, uh, or it can be, but that's not what it's for. It's, it's, it's not meant, it's not a, some sort of bonus. Like, ah, you published a book and did a good job and you got a promotion here. I'll give you job security. It is precisely to protect us from political interference and public pressure in trying to research sensitive areas and to speak the truths in publications. So when I say that, most people will immediately think, well, okay, I mean, you're not working on like gun control or abortion or you're not working on some really sensitive area where some political group will come after you. And to them, I say the following, there is not a single area of research in a university that someone somewhere with a lot of money doesn't have a vested interest in you saying some particular thing about it or not saying some particular thing. Zero. There's no area. I posted a, a podcast online about white supremacy. A, a number of others that I've done, uh, medieval identities and gender and so on, these are all topics on which if, if I weren't institutionally protected, that immediately all the people who leave comments on you know, websites and you know, all this kind of thing, they would be writing to deans and provosts and whatever, oh, fire that guy because he's whatever. And this would immediately happen. Like it's already happening. Fortunately, at the moment we're protected, but imagine now if one of these people is a donor and because the universities are desperate for money and are turning to, you know, private partnerships and, you know, raise fundraising is a huge part of it. All you need to get is some donor with some ideas about, you know, medieval Serbia or whatever to say, I've heard you, I'm going to give you money for that, that you, comp, you know, new athletic complex or whatever. But I heard you've got this guy who said that, <laughs> But if we weren't protected that way, the way our adjuncts aren't, I mean, I'll protect the, I'll protect our adjuncts if this ever comes up. Like I'll just sort of extend that. Like, no, I'm not going to not hire someone because you don't like the way they teach ancient gender. Right. Right. But if you phase tenure out and you have academics who are not, who don't feel protected that way, you, the general public, you on the internet who are listening to me right now, you are not going to be getting the unvarnished truth, or at least what we think it is from us. You're going to start getting very carefully hedged PR or you know dip lawyerly statements about things that are not going to reflect to you what we think is the case in any field. Britain is not quite at that level yet, although... It wouldn't surprise me if in the next 20 to 30 years, increasingly universities do have to rely on big donors like that. But I'd like to think not, I'd like to hope not so that it doesn't become as politicized because what you've just described is, a, is the politicization of research. Yeah, and that's what we, we need to try to protect protect research from being politicized. In, we don't have the system of tenure here. When you get your permanent job, if you're lucky enough to get one because they're like hen's teeth, after a probationary period, assuming you don't screw up by, I don't know, sleeping with your students or somehow bringing the university into disrepute, then you are made permanent. And then it's very difficult to get rid of you as an individual unless unless it's really for gross misconduct. What can be done is that the position may be deemed not necessary. Right. And then there is a redundancy process in which it's explored if the position is needed. And, and so, I mean, there are ways to get rid of people. I have found myself in a redundancy pool twice um, in the last 20 years at Bristol. And there have been different political reasons for initiating those redundancy processes, actually. Yeah, yeah. It is still political, but it's not from that 
external, this outside donor doesn't like what we're doing in our department. So we need to try to, right, right, we don't right. have that interference. There are other biases, but they're usually within the organization itself. So tomorrow we're almost out of time. And I think we laid everything out pretty clearly so that our audience can understand the institutions in which we work and our concern for how these, you know, both the decline in support for public institutions is eroding that which they love, which is us, you know, engaging in this research and, and making it available. You know, the uh, David Graeber uh, anthropologist recently died. And I read, I was on an airplane once and he had an article, some, maybe it was in the Chronicle, I, I don't know. And he, he was making this hypothetical argument about universal basic income. So it's a thought experiment. Imagine if universal basic income came along and said, okay, you know what? I'm going to give you half the salary that you make now. And, and you can leave your job and just take that. You, say, you don't work. That's your, right? A question to academics. Like, would you take that deal in order to continue to do research? Right? Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, you know how he, he was very provocative. Yeah. You know, yeah. Basically trolling the profession, right, all the time. Yeah. But I sometimes, I wake up in the night sometimes and thinking about this, like, would I take that deal in order to do more research? Like, assuming you have access to a library and you know, whatever, like, how much do you love your research? <laughs> I think he'd take it. I, he was the kind of person, I think he would take it. But uh, anyway, no, I don't mean to put you on the spot. That's not a question. That's, <laughs> that's just a hypothetical. Uh, anyway, any closing thoughts? Um, I... Coming into this, I actually thought we were probably further apart, but actually the more we've discussed and compared, contrasted and analyzed, actually I think the UK and the US are not as, as different as they might look from structures and practices, which I have to say for me is worrying for the future of UK Agreed. higher education. Yeah, Agreed. because I mean, I, in the long run, I think it's moving in the U.S. way anyway. The cap on tuition fees can't remain forever. Um, I think it's going to have to become much more of that free market economy in university education, like as exists in the U.S. And then goodness only knows what's going to happen here. Or we can just tax all of those sums that are sitting when they came in islands or wherever they are. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that would, that, that would solve a lot of problems. Right? That would indeed. That would indeed. All right, Tamara, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been so much fun, and I've really enjoyed it. I could talk to you for hours. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, likewise.